Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Yorkshire Live. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, bringing you another episode of analysis and political commentary from the North. Now, our two guests today are politicians on either side of the party divide, but who each represent northern towns looking for answers about how best to move forward from their industrial pasts. And in fact, they're both speaking at a big conference this week called Restitch, organised by the think tank Onward, being held in London and Halifax's magnificent Peace Hall about how to create more connected and rooted societies. Later in the podcast, we'll be hearing from the Penniston and Stocksbridge Conservative MP Miriam Cates about how a manufacturing revival is needed if the steel town that dominates her patch is to thrive. I think sometimes we have the tendency to think of manufacturing as an industry of the past, and it really isn't. I mean, you know, there are some sectors that obviously have declined and aren't ever going to get back to, to what they used to be. And sometimes we think of you know, coal mining and things like that, which of course isn't, isn't going to come back. But actually in the UK, we have some incredible manufacturing businesses that are quite niche, that are quite bespoke, that are quite high tech. They're never going to challenge the likes of China for mass production and, and, and cheap goods. But there is a huge potential for them to expand into these kind of bespoke, high tech, high value uh, markets. You know? But now let's speak to a Labour MP, Lisa Nandy, the party's shadow levelling up secretary, no less, whose constituency of Wigan was at the heart of the industrial north when our region was the engine room of Britain, but is now looking to forge a sustainable and vibrant future. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Why don't we start with Wigan, as it obviously is the place you know best. You, your talk this week at this conference is about strengthening the fabric of towns. So how well is that going in Wigan? Because I know the local council bid for levelling up cash to improve the, the galleries shopping centre, but it didn't get anything. And there's quite a fierce local debate going on, isn't there, about what direction the town centre ought to go in. So so what what's your sort of view of how levelling up is going on in, in, in your local constituency? Well, we find ourselves in the same position as many towns across Britain. We've had over a decade of austerity that has sucked not just money out of our community, but it the harsh and deep cuts to the public sector had a huge knock-on impact on our whole local economy because when people were put out of work, when public service contracts were cut, it had a huge impact on the private sector as well. And so like many places, what we saw was a spiral where because people simply didn't have money in their pockets, the high streets were struggling, the town centre was struggling, and we've had to do a lot to try and rebuild. We've been bidding for the same pots of money as other, other places. We've been forced into this Hunger Games style system by the government where we compete with other areas that we would ordinarily work with in order to get little bits of money back um, from the money that have been taken from us over the last decade. I believe we can do far, far better for this country than that. This isn't just about rebuilding our post-industrial and coastal towns. This is about making sure that we have a settlement in Britain so that every part of this country can contribute to the national effort so that no place is written off or left behind because at the moment what we've got is an over-reliance on a handful of sectors, particularly the city of London, in a small corner of the country. And actually that doesn't work for anybody. Britain can do far better if we spread investment, prosperity, opportunity far more widely. And if the government won't do it, Labour will. That's what I'll be saying to people in Halifax this week. 
broadening things out a bit on your main policy area of leveling up. We have a, a white paper now and a, a leveling up and regeneration bill over 300 odd pages. Um, it feels as though we know a bit more about what Boris Johnson's flagship policy actually means in practice. And I think you described the bill as desperately unambitious uh, recently. So set out for us Labour's vision or your vision of levelling up. How is it different from the Conservatives' vision and how, how is it more ambitious than what they're setting out? I've said for a long time that we need a plan for Britain that matches the ambition of the people in it. People are really ambitious for their families, for themselves, for their communities and for their country. But there's no bigger sign, I think, of the lack of confidence that the government has in its own agenda, that the only part of this 300 page bill that is actually dedicated to levelling up, which enshrines the 12 levelling up missions in law, allows the government to change those missions if they're not actually able to meet the targets. So they can ditch them, they can abandon them at any point. It just simply isn't worth the paper it's written on. I think we can do better. I think we could end the system where we have to compete with each other and work together across the country to raise up opportunities and standards together. I think would end the system where we just move a handful of jobs from one part of the country to another and actually start investing in the skills, uh, the education of our young people so that they can get the good jobs that are on offer. At Labour Party conference last year, our Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves set out a commitment that under the next Labour government, we will invest 28 billion a year every year for a decade in what she called climate investment. What that really means is good jobs back in coastal and industrial communities that within living memory powered this country and could do again. If you want to see an example of how that can work, go to Grimsby, where the wind industry uh, benefited from the regional development agency that was set up by the last Labour government over a decade ago. They recognised the asset and potential that Grimsby had invested in creating those jobs. There's a global race on to get these jobs and we invested to make sure that we brought them here. And I stood with Keir Starmer with a young apprentice called Jess a few months ago, listening to her talk about how she was powering the world from the Grimsby docks. Every young person in this country deserves the opportunity to do that at the moment. What we say to young people is if you want to get on, you've got to get out. Well, that's just not good enough. And that's why I'm setting out this week how we're going to go about working with people across the country to rebuild this country from the ground up. So when you're talking about ending this Hunger Games style bid bid for cash and you know, beauty pageant, I think is a word other people use for it. Are you saying that Labour would be giving local leaders rather than a central pot of money they all have to bid into, they'd all get a longer term settlement so local councils would get one bigger pot of money that they could use however they however they wanted rather than having to jump through all these hoops that central government's imposing on them at the moment yeah it's increasingly clear that local government needs longer term funding settlements at the moment they have to exist from year to year without any certainty or stability about what they're going to be able to spend in the coming years so they're doing a many local authorities have just been through this process again of doing a budgeting process without actually knowing what their budget is that isn't just bad for local areas it robs people in those areas of the power to determine what choices should be made for themselves and you know you look at some of the powers that are on offer around the country greater manchester where i'm an mp my constituents are going to benefit from the fact that the a small group of men in whitehall have decided that they will allow andy burnham 
to have some control over the buses that connect us up to jobs and opportunities and apprenticeships, friends and family. But why on earth is it that just over the border in West Lancashire, people are being denied the same control over things that fundamentally matter to them? Just seems to me a nonsense. And it was Tracy Brabin, actually, who coined the phrase beauty pageant. I was with her last week in Leeds uh, with the Metro mayors, and she was telling me about how they'd been successful in bidding for some money for buses. Oliver Coppard, the new South Yorkshire mayor, said to me, unfortunately, we didn't get a penny. But yet Tracy had was struggling with the funding for um, charging points for those buses. South Yorkshire had been successful, West Yorkshire less so. So you've got government, one government department that is that is forcing areas to compete with one another some people get the buses some people get the charging points it just shows the absolute absurdity of this system um, that has seen a small group of people usually men in Whitehall exert a grip over millions of decisions that should be made much closer to home talking of your visit up to Leeds with with Keir Starman I think it was the first in-person meeting you had with Labour's elected Metro mayors which just gives you an idea about what the last couple of years has been like and I think you were you were talking with the mayors weren't you about a potential Labour government and how they how it could work with Metro mayors as an example of you know elected leaders who are already doing things in their areas I mean can you can you say a bit about the kinds of things you were exploring I mean are you hoping to make greater use of you know the successes of of Metro mayors in, in in the coming years? I think it was really really telling actually that there was so much that the mayors were able to say about what they'd done with the existing powers that they had. And the work going on in Greater Manchester, for example, that I'm obviously very familiar with as a local MP, about retrofitting homes, making sure that we get homes insulated and fit for the 21st century. That is creating jobs, it's creating apprenticeships, but it's also the sort of long-term action that helps people with the cost of living crisis. We're, you know, been a lot of buzz and speculation this week about whether the government's going to finally step forward and provide some short-term help for people with the cost of living crisis. But in action, in practice, councils and mayors across the country are actually taking the long-term steps that are needed to do it. And it makes you think what more could be done if we put power into the right hands and gave people the right to be able to make those decisions for themselves. I'll give you another example. I was talking to the leader of Manchester City Council last week. Um, Birmingham has long been calling for a hotel bed tax, a tourist levy. They've been trying to convince the Treasury that, like most major cities in the world, they should have the ability to be able to raise some money through that. Manchester's just introduced one, but it's voluntary because they don't have the power to be able to do it. This is the conversation that is constantly being had between our Northern leaders and the Treasury um, and Number 10 and the Department for Leveling Up, because they can do a lot as it stands, but they could do so, so much more if they were given the powers and the respect that they deserve in order to be able to deliver. So you'd like mayors to have more tax raising powers, because that's often what you hear from the Conservatives, isn't it, about Metro mayors. They, they say, you know, we'd like to give them more powers, but actually they need to take you know, the responsibility and accountability that, that comes with that. And they ought to if they want to spend more money on whatever, they ought to raise the money themselves to be able to do that. So it, it's your view, is it, that you'd like Andy Burnham or 
Tracy Brabin, if they want to do something, to have the ability to ask local taxpayers to or local businesses to to help pay for that. We've kickstarted a conversation with the metro mayors and council leaders across the country about the sort of powers that they might need, including fiscal powers. Um, but I think it's also right to acknowledge that we've got a, a perfect storm in many communities across the country at the moment. We've had over a decade of austerity. We've got a cost of living crisis, inflation at its highest rate for 40 years. And we've also had a system in which the spending decisions have been made have been this search for greater productivity and growth, which has meant that some areas have continued to pull further and further ahead and other areas have fallen further and further behind. So there is a limit to what you can ask people in those communities to do because the assets and the wealth have been stripped from people. That's one of the reasons why the cost of living crisis matters so much. It's a nonsense to talk about a Medici style renaissance of our towns and cities when people simply don't have money in their pockets to spend because every pound that goes back into the pockets of working people goes back out into the local economy and onto the high streets and this is how you get thriving town centres not through a lick of paint that just papers over the cracks but actually by getting money back into people's pockets and rebuilding the fabric of the local economy. I'll just ask you another slightly more local question if I can but it has a bit more wider resonance across the north so your neighbouring MP in, uh, in Lee James Grundy a Conservative is petitioning Michael Gove to allow his town to split away from the borough of Wigan I think he calls it uh, Lexit and he believes that the Labour-run Wigan Council doesn't care about his part of the patch and there's other examples of this in the north like in uh, West Yorkshire the Tory MPs for Shipley and Keefley want to break away from Bradford and uh, on Merseyside, the Tory MP for Southport wants to break away from uh, the borough of Sefton. So I'm kind of interested in your view. I guess you know about the, the situation locally. I mean, should that be allowed to happen? If people in Lee don't feel they belong in Wigan, should they just be allowed to go it alone and form their own local authority? I mean, I think it's worth saying that there is a bit of a view in government that James has kind of lost the plot with some of this. He raised it at Prime Minister's questions in the middle of a you know, a crisis for many families and businesses around the country. And I think people in Lee, frankly, would prefer that the government actually started acting on high inflation and started trying to build walls between Wigan and Lee. But there is there is a sort of serious point behind this. I mean, I, you know, I'd refute the idea that Wigan Council doesn't deliver in Lee. There's always been a healthy rivalry between us, and I'm perfectly happy to engage in that as well but you know there's been investment into things like the turnpike gallery in lee the arts and culture renaissance that the council is trying to kick start with a bit of help now from the arts council has been very focused on lee as the main driver of that but there, there is a bit a bigger point here which is that lee is not part of wigan lee is a place in its own right with a proud history and a proud identity and a contribution to make and although there are lots of synergies and similarities between us, the, um, the, the, the contribution, the assets and the potential in Lee are distinct and unique. And over the years in, in policy, there's been a, a debate about whether you can regenerate areas um, by taking what's known as a space blind approach. This is a an approach that was very prevalent during the 1980s and 1990s, especially in the United States. The idea when pushed by people like Ronald Reagan, that if you, if you took a place-based approach, what you ended up doing was just 
helping wealthier people in poorer areas. Actually, I think that's now widely recognised that that is a nonsense, that taking a place-based approach does help you to realise the unique assets and potential in each place. And what we've had in this country for a very long time now is large parts of the country just written off for, for the, their ability to make a contribution to our future. In Halifax at the Onward conference this week, that's what I'm saying must change. No longer will we write off the contribution that people make, whether it's in Lee or in Wigan or in any other part of this country. We should invest in the potential that is there. And the best way to do that is not just to get fair investment decisions, but to get power back into local hands so that people can drive those outcomes for themselves. I've got one final, uh, slightly cheeky question, if you don't mind, about your <laughs> longer term ambitions. Now, I remember, and oh, no. uh, you might not like this one. I remember a few years ago when Boris Johnson was asked whether he wanted to be prime minister. And he said, if the ball comes loose from the back of the scrum, which it won't, of course, it would be a great, great thing to have a crack at. Now, I suspect he was talking about a different code of rugby to the one that's popular up here, but it's quite a colourful analogy. And of course, with Keir Starmer's stance that he's taken, that he, on this police investigation in Durham, there is a genuine possibility, I guess, that in the relatively near future, he might be forced to resign because of the position he's taken. Obviously, his position is that he's not broken any laws, so it won't come to this. But to continue the analogy, if the ball comes loose from the back of the scrum, uh, would you fancy another crack at being Labour leader? I mean, I suspect we're talking about a different type of rugby because Boris Johnson tends to use the wrong one in its analogies and my, my, my rugby league credentials are impeccable. Um, but I, I mean, the honest answer to this is that I want to be in government. I've spent 12 years having a ringside seat to the devastation that successive Tory-led governments have, have wreaked on large parts of the country. I don't want us to be written off anymore. I want a government that matches the level of ambition that we have for ourselves, our families, our communities and our country. I think that can only happen with a Labour government. So it's not Boris Johnson's job that I'm coming for. It's Michael Gove's job. And I said to him the other day, don't get too comfortable in that new office in Wolverhampton because I'm sizing it up already. We're gonna, we've got to get into government. It's been 12 long, hard years for people and we can rebuild this country. We can build a country that I've believed in all my life, but never yet seen. But we can only do it with a change of government. Lisa and Andy, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. So, as Boris Johnson aims to steer the country out of the current cost of living crisis, he's pinning his hopes on creating an economy characterised by high-skilled, high-pay jobs. But in parts of the north of England, where those kinds of jobs have become harder and harder to come by, as manufacturing and traditional industries have declined in recent decades, how can we generate good jobs and restore a sense of pride in work? One of the MPs focusing on that very question is Miriam Cates, who became the first Conservative to represent Peniston and Stocksbridge in South Yorkshire in decades when she was elected in 2019. Her patch includes a large steelworks where hundreds of staff face a rather uncertain future and Miriam has spent a lot of time as an MP addressing the future of the steel sector in the North. Like our previous guest, Lisa Nandy, she spoke at the Restitch conference on just this subject. So let's explore some of those issues with her. Miriam, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. So you've spoken of the need for a manufacturing 
revival across the north to bring back those well-paid and high-status jobs we were talking about in areas like yours. So what, in your view, are the barriers to that happening and how are we doing uh, at overcoming them as a, as a country? Yes, so I think we do need a manufacturing revival. I think sometimes we have the tendency to think of manufacturing as an industry of the past, and it really isn't. I mean, you know, there are some sectors that obviously have declined and aren't ever going to get back to, to what they used to be. And sometimes we think of, you know, coal mining and things like that, which of course isn't, isn't going to come back. But actually, in the UK, we have some incredible manufacturing businesses that are quite niche, that are quite bespoke, that are quite high tech. They're never going to challenge the likes of China for mass production and, and, and cheap goods. But there is a huge potential for them to expand into these kind of bespoke, high tech, high value uh, markets. You know, I've got half a dozen just in my constituency alone that are doing incredible trade all the way around the world. But like you say, there are some significant barriers to them expanding. And when I talk to the people who own and run these businesses, they want to take on more people. They want to sign more deals. I mean, obviously, there are difficult conditions at the moment, um, but they want to expand. But there are some big barriers to doing that. So one of those is um, things like business rates and energy prices being disadvantageous to manufacturers, whereas in other countries, in Europe, for example, um, the government very much helps manufacturing uh, sector, subsidises the cost of energy, uh, which we don't do in this country and has weakened our manufacturing base over the last few decades. I think that's something we should look at. Um, we also um, have moved in this country far more than other Western countries to this kind of um, cognitive eco economy where we send 50% of, of our young people away to university to get academic degrees. And yet there aren't nearly enough of these academic graduate jobs to go around. And it's manufacturing and technical uh, industries that are then missing out on the talent and skill of these young people who then don't end up uh, going into these manufacturing jobs because they've been pushed down this academic route at school. So I think we need a whole rethink of our post-16 education. Um, we send we spend too much money on higher education and not enough money on, on training apprenticeships. And I think if some of the SMEs, the small manufacturers, could get hold of some of the money that we spend on higher education and use it for training up people on the job. And don't forget, these are high skilled jobs. You can come out with a degree level qualification alongside. Then they would have the flexibility to actually train up. Uh, the things they need, the people they need. And then I think the third thing is about the attractiveness of those jobs. You know, I, I've born and bred in Sheffield and lived there all my life, but I have to be honest, I had no idea what the inside of a steelworks looked like or a manufacturing plant until I became the MP and I started to to visit these places. And, you know, and I'm a scientist and I have to say, if I had my time again, I'd be quite interested in, in, in um, going down one of those routes, seeing science in action, technology in action, the kind of research and development that goes on at these places. They are giant labs, some of them. They're not the kind of dirty workshops that we, that we think of. So I think trying to make those careers more attractive to our young people in our local area, perhaps by getting them shown around these factories at an early age, more, um, more collaboration with schools and careers and things like that. So I think making those jobs attractive um, is a really important thing. What we tend to forget is these are well-paid jobs. I mean, steel uh, jobs pay 50% more than the median Yorkshire wage, probably more in my patch because it's high value uh, manufacturing. These are well-paid jobs. And if we can give them the security of uh, being part of a kind of national industrial strategy, then I think we need to do that. But there are a lot of levers that the government needs to pull. Obviously, you mentioned you know, the skill shortages that we see in the north, and there's obviously a big gap in productivity between our region and the the southeast. So am I right in thinking that you would like to see the way we spend our education budget 
reprioritized and so that some of the uh, so more money is spent on apprenticeships and that more practical vocational education rather than the academic route which you, you, I, I went down that you went down that a lot of people in the north will have, will have gone down yes that's right so at the moment we spend over 11 billion pounds a year of taxpayer cash on higher education so that's money we don't get back because 75 percent of graduates never fully repay uh, their student loan and if you think about it that money only helps half the population so can you imagine saying that only half the population could have free schooling? I mean, you just, you know, it's quite an odd concept, really. That £11 billion is not spread equally across the population. Only those who go, go to university get access to that ta- taxpayer cash. So I just think we need to make it more fair and open up that money to be available as a training budget for all young people, whatever route uh, you choose to make. And I think that would open up the market in technical and vocational um, education. We're an outlier in this country. We're the only w- developed Western nation that doesn't have technical colleges. Since we closed the polytechnics and made them into universities, we don't have high level technical colleges. We don't have a culture in going into apprenticeships. We have a culture of going away to university, leaving your community, leaving your family, uh, leaving your connections rather than staying local. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. And we've got some of the best um, academic institutions in the world in terms of, 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 of uh, universities. But you have to ask, is it necessary? Is it a good idea for half the population to go down that route when there just aren't the jobs um, in those sectors to make it worthwhile for people? Whereas if we started people off uh, younger in apprenticeships, getting the same level of, of qualifications, but working uh, and, and earning money and, and feeding into those productive jobs, then I think the whole economy um, would, would be better off, really. The only thing I didn't mention as well is that we could do something on procurement. So we're very, we haven't done very well over recent years of procuring, of, of government contracts procuring their um, suppliers through, through the British market, which I think other, other countries are better at. For example, why not for HS2 set a minimum amount of that steel that should come from the UK or at least a target? Those are something that we should be able to do post-Brexit and we've got the procurement bill coming up uh, which I'm hoping will will help us to do that. Because again, that would make a huge difference to, to British manufacturing. You were talking about the way that our education system is funded and prioritised. And obviously at the moment, that the decisions about how that happens are all done or largely done uh, from central government, from Whitehall. And uh, in Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, he suggests that elected metro mayors, local leaders like him, should be should take control of the post 16 education system get their hands on the budgets and the levers as you describe it to reprioritize the way the system works to make it work better for local areas now obviously in south yorkshire is a labor mayor you're a conservative would you do you think one solution to the problem is giving more power and budgetary responsibility to local leaders to dictate how the education system works so that you can mold it to suit local priorities in the way that you've described? Um, well, the adult education budget is already fully devolved. So Andy Burnham and Oliver Coppard, obviously in South Yorkshire, have full control of how the adult education budget is, is spent. So in terms of reskilling, retraining adults, um, that is very much um, locally driven. Um, it's an interesting question about all of post-16. Um, I'm not sure that would work simply because we, we, you know, we do have this university sector, which I think is too big, but I do think still should be there. And I think you do then run into difficulties in terms of who funds higher education, given that a lot of people move away from their 
area to go to university. And I think also one of the things we are lacking in this country is a kind of coherent industrial strategy. And whilst we should have local industrial strategies, of course we should, we do need to think nationally as well. You know, what are the kind of industries that that Britain can compete in and be in part of the best of the world? And I think that has to be a national strategy as well. So my concern would be that if it was fully locally controlled and, and, um, and driven, we'd have kind of silos of one region decides I want to be good at this and another region decides they want to be good at the same thing and then they're in direct competition. So I think we do need some sort of national oversight. But you know, look, I, I, I completely support devolution in principle. I think decisions should be made as close to, as possible to the things they um, the, to the people they, they, they represent. But I do think there are issues in our current devolution settlement, which is that our mayors don't have tax raising powers. And so really what they're doing is just dividing up the pot that Whitehall has given. And I don't think that's full autonomy. And so I think there are, there are then issues in giving too much, too much control. So you think maybe giving mayors tax raising powers might be might be might be an idea? It would be a way to make them accountable. I think the problem at the moment, and I you know, and I I think as you said, Oliver Coppard's a Labour mayor. I'm a Conservative, but I think he's got a lot of potential. I I you know I wish him well. I think he's got a great vision for South Yorkshire, and I'll work with him however I can. Um, you know, to, to in the in the interests of our our region, but um, you know. It, I did notice in the election a complete disengagement, really, with the process of electing a South Yorkshire mayor, because I think sometimes people don't really know what they do, what they're there for, uh, what their devolved powers are. Um, and, you know, if they had some sort of some greater powers in terms of tax raising, um, they would then also be much more accountable and people would take much more of an interest, I think, in, uh, in um, what they were doing. And we saw over the pandemic, you know, I'm sure you remember when, Andy Burnham was uh, negotiating a settlement for going into tier four or whatever it was then I, you know, I've lost track, but you know, it became all a battle between him and the government and who can get the most money. Whereas actually it should be, um, you know, he is, he should be accountable to the people he, he's representing um, as much as the government. And I think at the moment, the settlement that we have doesn't quite, doesn't quite do that. I know one thing you're concerned about is the issue of uh, a lot of families not being able to afford a decent standard of living on just one full-time wage and obviously you're a, a working a working mum and um, what what got you interested in that as an issue and do you feel we need to look at you know the whole economic model of this country and the impact it has on on families and, and society good question well i suppose when i had so I've got three kids um, and when I took maternity leave uh, and was considering going back to work, um, I used to be a, a science teacher. You know, I kind of looked at, you know, the personal economic situation for our family in terms of how, you know, whether it's worth going back to work, how much childcare costs. And it struck me that we have a very, a tax system that really doesn't take into account families. It doesn't prioritise families, doesn't recognise families. So in this country, you are, you're, you pay income tax on the basis of your individual income. So if you earn the median salary of £30,000 and you're a single person living on your own, uh, you pay the same amount of tax as a single earner family with three or four children. Now, that seems inherently unfair to me. It's not based on your ability to pay. Um, whereas in other countries, they um, recognise the size of the household, they recognise families. So in Germany, for example, they tax couples together. If you want to be taxed together, both parents put together their income in a pot and you get tax on the basis of your whole income, plus quite generous tax allowances for each child that you have to recognise the fact that it's expensive to bring up children, but also it's an incredibly important job to parent children well because 
you know, the rest of their lives and their contribution to the economy and contribution to society depends on that in many ways. Um, and on the other hand, we try and force as many people as possible into the workplace. Um, and our answer to that is more free childcare, which I don't think is always necessarily in the best interests of children. So it's always, you know, it's since I've had children, it's been a topic close to my heart. And I think we've got into this situation because mainly of high housing costs, but also because of this individualized taxation system where most families just can't afford to live now on, on one wage. And I think there are lots of issues with that. I think there's a moral issue for, with that, actually. Um, you know, if you've got a decent job and you work hard, you ought to be able to support a family. I think that's just a kind of basic principle of of society. And if you can't, um, then I think we've got big questions about the affordability of our lifestyle rather than just, you know, should we should we pay everybody more? Which, you know, it'd be great if everybody could earn more. But I think we've got some more structural issues to solve than that, which are about reforming taxation, uh, not necessarily across the board tax cuts, um, but tax reforms that would favour families. And um, because families are suffering the cost of living probably worse than any other group, because if you've got one wage or one and a half wage, um, you're still feeling the cost of living increase by as many times as there are people in your household. It's a uh, quarter past 11 now on Wednesday morning. And I think Westminster is obsessed with what's going on with the Sue, Sue Gray report. I'm guessing you haven't seen it and I haven't seen it because we're busy doing this interview. But is there anything that could be in that report that would mean that you could no longer support Boris Johnson as Prime Minister? Or do you feel that there are other things that mean that he should stay on regardless of what the Sue Gray report says? Um, well, until I've read it, you know, I can't comment on it. But I would say that, of course, I'm not going to say that whatever that report says, I have unconditional support for the Prime Minister, because that would be ridiculous. No, Nobody's support is ever unconditional and, and things happen and things change. Um so, you know, let, let me read it and digest it before I comment on that. But, you know, the police report, the police have fine, have made one fine for one incident. Um, and it's also true that we have enormous challenges ahead as a country uh, and as a government that need our full focus. Um, you know, and I, I understand people's anger at what happened. I shared, shared that anger. But, you know, we have to take the big picture approach here. And in 10 years time, five years time, how will we look back on this? Will it have the significance? Will we think that we had it in proportion in terms of the amount of time and attention we've spent on it compared to some quite serious issues in terms of Ukraine, the cost of living, the pandemic? So I think we need to take a measured view and that means it will take some day, days to digest what it actually says. Miriam Cates, thank you for speaking to us today. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue. And it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. 